As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. St. Peter, the Rock and the Church. A talk by Father Michael Doody at the Immaculata Mission School 2018, held at Jane Franklin Hall in Hobart, Tasmania. So I've got my four-hour talk prepared, um, which I did on the long plane trip from uh, the UK to Australia. Just kidding. <laughs> just uh, at first, just a little bit about myself um, in connection with what I'm going to speak about, because this is entitled Peter. And I'm going to use Peter really as a way in to talk about the church, because um, obviously the church is important, you know. <laughs> So I'm going to explain how as we go along. But, you know, I was brought up in a, in a Catholic family um, with a particularly beautiful sister. She's not here, is she? No, no, she's not. Anyway, with, with uh, three sisters, in fact, three brothers as well. And I was brought up um, in the faith. You know, I, I went through everything. First Holy Communion, Confirmation, uh, the works, you know, went to Mass every Sunday. Um. And I served on the altar too, I was an altar server. And I remember from an early age having um, a sense of God's presence, a sense of God's reality and existence. And I think that was a great grace actually, to always have that. Um, So I didn't go through a crisis of atheism really or anything. I always somehow perceived um, God's presence and existence, even if I couldn't really explain what I meant by that. But one thing that I think is clear to me now is that I didn't really understand what the church was. I didn't really understand why I had to go to church. Uh, I didn't do it exactly reluctantly, but I wasn't exactly, you know, singing hallelujah and, you know, (laughs) rushing to, to the mass on a Sunday. And, you know, the people I was at mass with, I kind of didn't really want to mix with. In fact, that was a sense I got actually for the rest of my family. They're people just to be held at a distance, you know? <laughs> so not exactly the ideal, is it? The church meant to be brothers and sisters. No, but these people, they're at church, yes. You say hello, you're polite. But then we go home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not, not a great start. Um, and when I was at university, you know, I carried on going to Mass every Sunday. But, you know, my faith wasn't really that real. Um, and that was shown by my moral life, by the way, I just started to kind of, or well, a lot of people have spoken about it, you know, buy into the, the culture of our society, start to drink too much, start to just hang around with people who weren't going to lift me up and make me be the best person I could be. And I think that reached a very low point in my second year at university. I went to university in Scotland. And um, it was in Dundee. You've probably never heard of that place, but never mind. So at the end of the second year, it was a, it was a dark place. And it was from then that I started just to, to emerge from that, really. And one key thing for me was reading a book by a man you've probably heard of, um, C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis is great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Someone knows the greatness of the man in here. Um, you know, the only disadvantage he had, he was an Anglican. No offence to Anglicans or, or any. But, you know, he, he never made that move to the Catholic Church. But I have a theory that he is working big time in heaven now, trying to bring people into the Catholic Church. Because when I read that book, I said to myself, you know, this is truth. This is truth. This is the person 
who I meant to devote my whole life to, person of Jesus Christ, not C.S. Lewis. Okay. <laughs> just, just to be clear, just to be clear. <laughs> Gosh, I swore I would never, you know, make a slip up in my speech. But, you know. So, yeah, so I read this. I also started reading John's Gospel, and that was a tremendous kind of um, wake-up call to me because John just puts things so clearly and speaks about this, you know, battle between light and darkness and one line that I've shared with a few of the seminarians, I think, um, one of the lines that really struck me was, the one who commits sin as a slave to sin. The one who commits sin as a slave to sin. Because I realized that, you know, in doing what everyone else was really doing, I wasn't free. You know, everyone says, you're so free. We're so free, you know, dumping, you know, all the things we've learned from our childhood, dumping all good moral standards. We're so free. And we're not free at all. We're enslaved. And we feel that enslavement in a kind of deep misery, I think, that we experience at the heart of our soul and the most intimate parts of ourselves. So I started to kind of pull away from that. And with some delight, uh, recognised that I was getting happier. <laughs> and I started also to think about the church and the church's teaching and the importance of having the church as my guide, especially my guide in the moral life. And began to realise, you know, everything my parents told me was true. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, imagine that being brought up in the Catholic Church and it's the answer to everything. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm quite lucky, really. And, um, and so, yeah, I just found this in my life as I started to kind of follow the teachings more with my heart and really learn about the faith. I realised it was all true and that so many people around me at university were also kind of trapped in that enslavement. They were trapped in that misery. They weren't happy because, of course, they were trying to fill in that gap in our heart with something other than God, which is a phrase that comes from the master C.S. Lewis himself. The long, he says the long history of humanity is about mankind searching for something other than God to make them happy. And isn't that so true? But it's not easy to accept the church as a teacher. And I've come across this many times as a priest, you know. People who say, yeah, I get all this stuff with God and with Jesus Christ and that relationship we're meant to have. But I don't understand why I should do what the church says. You know, who are these men in the Vatican to tell me what to do? That's a phrase I've heard once or twice. You know, who do the church think they are? And of course, they're not talking about you and me. They're talking about the authority of the church, the teaching authorities of the church, the church that pronounces on moral matters and matters of faith. And I want to explore that a bit with you today. And I think a good place to start is with the title of this talk, The Person of Peter, who is, of course, our first pope. So I'm just going to go to, this is Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, um, verse 13 to 20. So I'll just read it. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's one of those, for me anyway, a kind of shiver down the spine scripture passages, you know. We can almost feel the, the weight of our Lord's authority as he says, you know, you are Peter. And he chooses that, that first pope. And notice that in doing that, Jesus changes his name. So it's Simon, Simon, whose name is changed to Peter. And in the scriptures, when God does that, he's giving a mission. OK, he does it also with Abraham. He changes to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. And he does it with Peter. Peter, a word which means rock. OK, so this is Peter's office. He is meant to be the rock on which the church is built. And we hear Jesus give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this has a bit of interesting um, Old Testament background, because if you go to the book of Isaiah in chapter 22, you will find um, a passage about um, the keys of the kingdom of the house of David being given to a man called Eliakim. Eliakim, who is in um, King Hezekiah's kingdom at that time, but he's in the dynasty, he's in the line of King David. And this, um, this key is a symbol of authority because Eliakim is like the prime minister in the kingdom. So the prime minister is only second in command to the king. What does that look like in the church? Who's the prime minister second only to the king? Well, it's Peter. Peter's the prime minister. So these keys that Jesus gives to Peter are keys that... Um, give on authority. And that's one of the most crucial things to understand about Peter and the other apostles, their authority to teach. We have a word for the teaching authority in the church. We call it the magisterium. You might have heard that word. Now, I, I know there's a, there's a few novels. I don't know if you've read Philip Pullman's novels. Um, I tried to read one, but it kind of... It lost me. Um, but in his books, the Magisterium is a big evil organisation that tries to control people's minds. Not sure what he was thinking of uh, when he thought of that. I don't think he was particularly um, pro-Catholic. Um, but of course, that's not what the Magisterium is. That's not what the teaching authority of the church is about. And I hope that will become clear. But it consists of the Pope and the bishops in communion with him. Listen to what the church says about the authority of the magisterium. This is in a document called De Verbum. Um, this was, was uh, brought out way back in 1965. It was one of the documents 
of the Second Vatican Council. So it says this, the task of authoritatively interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed down or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. That's quite a claim, isn't it? To claim that this church on earth, this church that is still there today, this Pope and the bishops in communion with him teaching today are part of the authority that Jesus himself gave. They speak in the name of Jesus Christ. And it might seem like quite a big claim, but it makes a lot of sense when we think about other things in the scriptures. Think of the very end of Matthew's gospel, the passage which is known as the Great Commission, where Jesus is sending out his apostles. And he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then this is the key line, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Now we know the Lord Jesus is with us in a particular way in the Eucharist. That's one way he's with us to the end of the age. He's with us today. He's with us in that beautiful, beautiful sacrament. But he's also with us through the presence of his Holy Spirit, which we were obviously speaking a lot about yesterday. And it's the Holy Spirit that is guiding the church. That's why the gift of the Holy Spirit is so important. Not because it gave, not just because it gave the apostles courage to preach the gospel, not just because it brought these fearful men into bold proclaimers of this wonderful good news, but because it's the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth through the authority of the church. And in fact, in John's gospel, Jesus promises that the Father will send the Holy Spirit, the counsellor, the advocate. And he says that it will teach them all things and remind them of all that he has said to them. So the Holy Spirit's going to remind those apostles and their successors of everything that Jesus has taught, everything that he said and did. And this special help of the Holy Spirit, this special assistance of God is something that stays with the church through successive generations. It helps each generation of the church know the faith, know what is true, know what is the real faith, know what is the true Catholic faith. Okay, We can know what the truth is and really in that way be in touch with the person of Jesus Christ. You know, something we don't hear a lot about is how the Bible came to be, you know? One of the things people don't realise is that, you know, we didn't have a New Testament complete, you know, straight away. Before that was ever around, there was just a church. There's a church you had, of course, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and then began this writing by the church of these wonderful gospels and these letters that we have today of St. Paul and others in the scriptures. 
So do we ever think about, you know, who made the contents page of the Bible, you know? It's the church. The church decided which books were in the New Testament, which books were in the whole Bible. It's the church which which says which words are inspired, which genuinely constitute the word of God. And that's why you have, you know, these other writings which aren't part of the scriptures, which we hear about sometimes. And, you know, the media says we've just discovered, you know, the gospel of Thomas lying under a rock. And the church has been hiding it away from you. So you don't discover the wonderful truths contained within. No, the church knew all about it. The church chose very deliberately those writings which expressed the real faith that the church had, which got us in touch really with the person of Jesus Christ. So the authority of the church is essential. Even when it comes to looking at the scriptures and and opening them and praying with them, we only have the gift of the scriptures because of the church. Now, you may have heard um, something of something called infallibility. Infallibility. You know, some people say that's ridiculous. You know, so if the Pope goes on his balcony and says, you know, today, um, even though it's raining, I'm going to say it's sunny and you've got to agree with me. That's not infallibility. Okay. (laughs) Infallibility is a charism. Again, it's a special gift of the Holy Spirit and assistance of the Holy Spirit given to the Pope. And at certain times when the bishops in communion with him speak about faith and morals and make a definitive proclamation so it's not something casual the church doesn't do this casually it doesn't speak infallibly all the time infallibility is usually exercised when there's a question in the church when there's something being debated where the people say well we're wondering what's true here what's the right way to go and the church trying to clarify and put us beyond all doubt says this is the way this is the truth this is the way to go So that's the reason for this infallibility. It's an assurance by Jesus Christ himself that we can trust the church and we won't be led into error. We won't be led into error, into the areas of faith and morals specifically. Recently, I became aware of a bit of scripture that I wasn't familiar with at all before. And it was from the book of Proverbs. Um, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. And in fact, um, Simone mentioned it um, in her testimony, which I found quite bizarre. It just came out. And she mentioned it in the translation that I'd heard it in, which I thought was even weirder. But the actual, you know, the RSV translation says this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. It's that last part. Do not rely on your own insight is also translated, lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. There's lots of people, you know, in the church who do lean on their own understanding, you know. They think that they know better. They think, in other words, that they're the magisterium. They're the teaching authority of the church. It doesn't matter what the church says. I do what I want to do. I do what I think is the truth. That's who I follow. It's me. <laughs> and that's what happens, you know, when we reject the teaching authority of the church, when we reject the magisterium, we become our own personal 
magisterium. I think it was Pope, Pope Benedict XVI, he was talking about conscience, and he said, you know, people often talk about the infallibility of conscience, you know, conscience in, in the wrong sense, which is conscience is that thing which tells me that what I think is right is right. Okay, so if I happen to have the subjective opinion that this is okay, then it's okay. That's not a good understanding of conscience. He says people who um, have a problem believing in the infallibility of the church don't have a problem in believing in the infallibility of their own conscience. You know, they never think that their conscience is going to lead them into anything bad. That's interesting, isn't it? So they prefer to trust themselves rather than the authority given by Jesus Christ. I, um, I love the teaching of Bishop Robert Barron. Uh, many of you will, will know of him, and his, he's got a great website called wordonfire.org. So if you don't know of him, if you've never heard anything about him, go and check that out. But he's really fond of using um, sporting metaphors. And he says, you know, the way to think about the teaching authority of the church, the way to think about the magisterium is they're kind of like, well, let's see, for me, you know, being from England, you know, soccer or football, as I call it, would be um, a popular sport. And, you know, you need in, in football and soccer, you need sidelines. You need a penalty area. You know, you have a referee who says when there's been a foul, etc., etc. Imagine a game of football with no sidelines, no referee. You've probably played it, you know. It's rubbish. <laughs> it's a rubbish game. <laughs> Games without rules are rubbish. <laughs> They're not fun to play. You take the rules away and it just actually sucks the joy out of the game. You know, even in those, you know, icebreaker games, they were describing to you, weren't they? There are rules, you know. So you've got to tag the person and then they're converted, you know. <laughs> Imagine if they just said, just run at each other, you know. <laughs> yeah, just do that. That'd be fine. Yeah. No, to make it interesting, you have a set of rules, you know. And like the magisterium of the church, the teaching authority of the church, give us gives us lines. It says, you know, this is where the truth is. You know, there's a lot of diversity, legitimate diversity of opinion, of expression of the faith. But there are lines beyond which we don't go. And they're for the free flowing of the game. They make the game possible. They don't stifle it. Again, freedom isn't being free from all rules. Freedom isn't being free of the commandments. Freedom isn't being free of the teaching of the church. Freedom is imbibing that teaching into ourselves, forming our consciences with it, and discovering the wonderful um, graces that, that brings. I, um, when I was studying in Rome, I had... Um, a course on ecumenism and one of the lectures was a Methodist so they kind of had guest lecturers and the Methodist in, in one of the, um, the classes he gave actually said you know one of the things we, we think is really quite great about the Catholic Church is that you have this teaching authority you have this authority that says you know this is part of the faith and this isn't you know we don't have that and he, he was saying how, what a gift that was but then he said, but, and this was the interesting thing, but I know loads of Catholics who don't agree with the teaching of the church. And so really, what's the difference? You know? And when you think about that, how awful is that that we as Catholics 
and probably not you know, a lot of us in this room, but certainly a lot of Catholics give scandal to others by dissenting from the teaching of the church, by saying that they know better, by saying that they know better ultimately than Jesus Christ himself really is what it, it comes down to. You know, Cardinal Dolan, um, I remember him once saying at World Youth Day, this was in Madrid, 2011. Who was there? Anyone, anyone here was there? Oh, good, a good few. And um, he said, you know, there's a lot of people trying to separate Jesus Christ from the church. We know the bride, the church is united to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The church and Jesus Christ are one. You can't take one really without the other. They come as a package because it's a church, of course, that Jesus Christ founded. And that's the the wonderful truth. Back to that chapter of Matthew. We heard about the transfer of authority. We've heard about that teaching authority of the church. You'll also notice um, Peter was told, whatever you bind on earth shall be considered bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loosed in heaven. Now, this is an explicit reference to the sacrament of reconciliation. And how wonderful that has been to see, you know, the unbinding of people as absolution is given, the freeing of people when they receive that sacramental grace. It's a wonderful thing to be a priest and witness that. So that authority is given to Peter and those apostles to forgive sins in the name of Jesus through his power. And that's a wonderful thing. And, you know, if we're talking about fidelity to the church, we're not only talking about fidelity to the church's teaching. We're also talking about fidelity to the sacraments. You know, the church teaches that we must confess all serious sins at least once a year. (laughs) But I don't think anyone would say that that is um, the ideal kind of frequency for the sacrament of confession. You know, usually people say once a month, or once a week if you, if you can, that'd be great. But you know, we need the sacraments. We need to be faithful to the sacraments if we want to grow as Catholics. And for the sacraments, of course, we need the church. Sacraments flow from the church's life. And the church's life, of course, flows from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So don't let the priest get bored sitting in the confessional. You know, it's, it's amazing. You know, we, we get so much spiritual reading done by going <laughs> to the confessional. <laughs> we, we, but we want to be disappointed. We want to think, oh, no, I haven't said my office, you know, and I don't have time to say my office because there's so many penitents coming. There's such a queue at my confessional. But sadly, in the UK, that's certainly not the case. You know, I'm twiddling my thumbs, you know, after I've got through the summer theology of, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of thinking, hey, what now? <laughs> so, so don't let the priest get bored. Don't let the confessional be unused. Frequent it. Hassle your priest. <laughs> you know, drive him mad. Uh, just don't tell him that I told you to do that. That's all. <laughs> you know, it's very true. Sin is not well understood. Um, Bless them. You know, someone told me when I first became a priest, you know, people think that the sick can't be lapsed, you know. So it's all about, you know, people who are housebound, who can't get to church physically. They say, people just assume that they are all faithful Catholics. 
And they're not, of course. Why, why should we think because someone is sick and ill um, that they're, they're really faithful Catholics? No, they have the same struggles as everyone else uh, with faith. And I remember um, quite a few people saying to me stuff like, when I asked them about confession, they would say to me, Ah, oh, Father, you know, I don't get out, you know, so I, I don't sin. <laughs> no. It's like, you, you think sin is about getting out and kind of just doing it? Like there's a, there's a sin shop where you go and I don't know. You know, we don't have a good understanding of, of, of what sin is. That sin is like, has been said beautifully. It's about a relationship. It's about the wounding of a relationship. So we have to uh, frequent the sacrament of reconciliation to deal with that. So again, in Matthew 16, Jesus says that the gates of death or the gates of Hades or the gates of the underworld or the gates of Sheol, many different translations, will never prevail against the church, will never hold out against it. So the main thing to understand here is that Jesus is saying You know, evil will never triumph against the church. The church will always survive. The church will always be here. And lo and behold, it is. You know, it's still here. It's still here. Napoleon Bonaparte once said to a cardinal of the church, he said, Your eminence, are you not aware that I have the power to destroy the Catholic church? And the cardinal just said to him, We clergy have been trying to do that for 1,800 years and we still haven't managed. And there's a good reason for that because we're not in charge, really. It's a divinely founded institution. Yes, it's got its human face too. It's got its sinners, you know. We know very well that the church is made up of sinners from the Pope to the bishops, through the priests, down to the last lay person. In fact, you know, many priests are buffoons. Many priests are buffoons. I want to give you an example. Um, yeah, you guessed it. You guessed it. So, so this is my first parish, okay? First parish in Leeds. And um, I was, I was, it was three years I was there. And in my last year, it was my last baptism. And I, I, I did, I'd done quite a few baptisms. That makes it worse, really, what I'm about to say. So, um, so I did the baptism, in, and at least I got up until the part, the main part of the baptism, which, of course, as you know, you pour the water over the baby's head and say, I baptise you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So everything had gone swimmingly up to then. So I go to the baptismal font and I, I pick up the shell, you know, which we use, the, the, the gold shell, which we use to pour the water over the baby's head. And I go, I baptise you, and I dip the shell into the water, except... I don't hear the sound of any water. I just hear the scraping of the shell (laughs) on the bottom of the font. And I just, I remember saying, what do you say in a situation like that? You know, sorry, I said, a bit embarrassing. There's no water. (laughs) So, uh, to their credit, the whole church just laughed. Uh, It was a very busy baptism as well, unfortunately. So I just... Calmly walked into the sacristy, got some water, blessed it, and then carried on with the baptism. <laughs> you know, it's people like me in the clergy, you know? <laughs> um, I can only imagine, but perhaps some of the bishops have had similar experiences, but perhaps not. <laughs> Certainly not in Tasmania. <laughs> but you know, we have a good model as well, don't we, in St. Peter. St. Peter himself, when the Lord called him the rock, 
I wonder if there's a twinge of irony there, you know? Rock, you know, he's rocky. He's like a rocking chair. You know, one moment he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The next moment he's saying, um, well, I don't think you should do that, Lord. You know, I don't think you should go and be crucified and stuff. And he gets called Satan by our Lord, you know. That's pretty, that's a pretty extreme, you know, swing. So we see in Peter that he is a frail man, a man who betrayed the Lord, a man who denied him three times. But, you know, the beautiful thing about Peter is back to that thing we were talking about, that he repented, he turned back. He had the humility to realise his fragility as a human being. And that's the beautiful thing about Peter. And that's what makes him actually a really good model of the papacy. Someone who recognises that it's the office that has been um, formed by Jesus Christ and that the man who holds it is a weak, frail human being like all of us. But Jesus chose him. That's the beautiful thing, you know. Jesus chooses you and me. He chooses you and me for a purpose. There's a, a, a piece of scripture that I had on my ordination card and it, it was that beautiful line from John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. How often do we think it's all on us? You think, oh gosh, Lord, I'm going to let you down. We should hear those words that are echoing, you know, I have chosen you. You didn't choose me. I've chosen you to be here. I've chosen you to be the Catholic you are today. I'm also reminded of something that St. Peter said uh, in chapter 6. You know, before we were talking about leaning not on your own understanding. And Jesus, in chapter 6 of John's Gospels, giving the teaching about the Eucharist, about eating his body and blood. And as we know, you know, this was intolerable language. That's what they said. It's intolerable language. And we're told that when he gives this teaching, that many of the disciples stop going around with Jesus. They stop following him. So many leave him. And interestingly, that verse is chapter 6, verse 66. 666, we're told that they all leave him. And Jesus says to the 12, he says, what about you? Do you want to go away too? And then Peter comes up with this beautiful statement of faith. Beautiful because of its humility. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Lord, we don't really understand what you're talking about. You know, we don't know what you mean when you say, eat my flesh, drink my blood. But we know if you are telling us to do it, then we're going to do it. We believe you, Lord. We believe that you have the words of eternal life. Peter doesn't lean on his own understanding. Peter doesn't say, I know best. He says, the Lord knows best. It takes humility to obey the church. It takes humility to obey the teaching that comes from the church, especially when it's difficult. Close with this. I was watching a conversion story recently. As I, I, I love watching conversion stories. It was an EWTN. It was um, The Journey Home, a beautiful show. And, and uh, this, this woman who was telling her conversion story um, was actually, she was quoting Scott Hahn, you know, Scott Hahn, a really popular author. 
And he, he apparently said something, which I never heard him say um, before, but she, she uh, quoted him. She said, at the beginning, when I was a Christian, I just used to think it was all about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That was it. That was the goal. That was the final end point. Now, as a Catholic, I'm wondering why I settled for just that. And it made me think that. It's quite a shocking statement. But when you think about it, it's true. Jesus doesn't only call us into a personal relationship with himself. He calls us into this wonderful church. He calls us into a church which reaches beyond time and space, which reaches into heaven itself. He calls us to be part of a family. That's what Jesus calls us into. Not only a personal relationship with him, but to live out that relationship in the church, which his which is his body, his mystical body. So never think it's about, you know, either or. Now, when we embrace Jesus Christ fully, when we embrace the bridegroom, we embrace the bride too, the bride that is the church. God bless you. Thank you. That was Father Michael Doody with St. Peter, the Rock and the Church. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.